Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners. This story is going to take us to the town of Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. With a population hovering just below 10,000 people, Bridgewater is known by its residents as much for its role as the region's commercial center as it is for its access to natural resources. Being surrounded on all sides by lakes, rivers, and forests, Bridgewater has a lot to offer. But like many other unfortunate towns, Bridgewater too is widely known as the setting for a tragedy. The story we're about to hear involves what, for most, is an unthinkable crime. Penny Boudreau fears her 12-year-old daughter Carissa is going to step in the way of a romantic relationship that Penny seems to value above everything else. And as this story progresses, it's going to be painfully clear the lengths Penny is willing to go to save it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'll be joined by Sherry Aikenhead to discuss her best-selling book, Mommy Don't, in the case that it covers, the murder of Carissa Boudreaux. Carissa, we love you. Your grandparents are looking for you. All of us are. I don't know where you are, but just come home or call or something, please. We're all worried. We just want you home safe. It's not like we're gonna get mad. We just want you home safe, please. Sherry, I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, about this case, and everything in between. But before we get into all that, let's let's start with you. This is our, our first time meeting. Tell me a bit about Sherry Aikenhead. Where are you from? What led you to this? Well, uh, I'm a small town girl from Fall River, Nova Scotia. Um, I went to King's Journalism School in Halifax. And uh, right away, I got hired in Toronto by the news magazine McLean's. Oh. Um, yeah, and I was a staff writer there, and for 20 years, I kind of crisscrossed the country um, doing journalism, um, Edmonton Journal out in Alberta, then like a good Maritimer came home when I started having children and um, worked at the Daily News in Halifax, so I was the managing editor there, um, had a great uh, end of my journalism career, and then I went into government communications. Oh, wow. Okay. I guess it's not a big departure to go from journalism to government communications, I guess. Would it be? Not really, because you're still uh, working with the media and trying to make sure, you know, that uh, the story gets out and the facts get out. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely it's in my blood. You know, I know what a good story is and I love storytelling. Mm -hmm. I always have. And and now that you're you've ended your career in journalism doesn't seem like you really have because we're here talking about a book you just released i believe just weeks ago it had come out before we get into the book though what you know you're retiring why did you decide instead of um spending all your time in the garden spending all of your time writing and researching this case in particular what led to you writing this book well, I've uh, been working on it for four years. Okay. Uh, I started research in pre-COVID. But it's a great question. You know, uh, I was in government 15 years and um, I was working in the Department of Justice for Nova Scotia. 
And in that role, like in communications, you work with the media, you know, you follow um, the big cases that are, of course, justice related. This one really grabbed me, I have to say. The day that I was down on Bridgewater in my role as a communications director, I sat in the court um, the day that Penny was coming in. So I sat in those court benches along with the family and hundreds of others. Uh, You know, as a mother of three boys, I just felt sick. And I thought I drove back to the city after all the interviews with all people were done and went to my colleague in Halifax at the Department of Justice. And I said, you know, I'm going to write a book about this someday. That was 15 years ago. Wow. So this has been something that's been on, you say you've been working on it four years, but it took a, quite a bit of marinating before you even put pen to paper. Were, were you act like, I guess you were following it closely as it was proceeding from that point on with the plan to eventually write it or, you know? Honestly, um, my motivation was really to make sure that the 12 year old girl who was in the headlines, um, you know, in this horrific rare crime, I, I just wanted her to be more than a statistic. Like Carissa Woodrow, from what I saw on the TV coverage and everything, you know, this was a, a really wonderful, full of potential child. And um, day-to-day media, uh, you know, you may not realize that. And I just wanted her, um, I guess, memory to, to, yeah, to pay tribute to who was she Mm-hmm. as much as who was Penny in the horrible crime. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the, the horrible crime, but as far as the book, Mommy Don't, you, you tell the story of, of the crime and the, you know, I, I guess trial is not the right word, but like kind of the legal proceedings that happened after it. But you also spend an incredible amount of time providing biographical information about both Penny and Carissa and, you know, all the people connected to them. So I think just in your explanation there that you wanted to, honor Chris's memory. Uh, I, I can see that now in the book because you do spend, I, I've learned a lot more about her through your book than I ever uh-huh. did from the years of of news reports. Uh, maybe before we get into the story, give me an idea of the sort of research you've done into the book to put this story together and to learn all these details about the lives of the people in the book. You know, I'm really glad to hear you say that, Jordan, because that was my goal. And um, my journalism background i i decided to enter you know try to interview everyone i could and really go back into when carissa was born who was her family who was penny who influenced how did you know this story come come to happen mm-hmm. um and i did 25 interviews over those three years uh and they were tough interviews you know i mean i appreciated that every time i'd call someone it might be traumatic like why is this person calling me but um ultimately when i went and saw people and sat down and talked to them friends of carissa's three of them who were only 12 at this time you know they trusted me and opened up to me carissa's aunt um you know she had never done a big interview and yet somehow um i really got to know some of these people and and i feel it really helped you know shed light on um Penny Daw, Penny Woodrow, Carissa, um, and why did this story capture us so much in that town? I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. 
Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods. Explorers discovering nothing but destitution. True crime calamity. Oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. So pack a lunch. Subscribe to Marooned wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. One of the... Things that really come out uh, in in the very first pages of the book, uh, to be honest, is that Carissa was being raised in a rather complicated family dynamic. It wasn't, uh, I I don't think, I I think it's fair to say it wasn't a traditional kind of family structure that that this crime happened in. Give me a bit of, like, maybe to help contextualize the crime, uh, give me an idea of Carissa's family and the living situation at the time that this happens. For sure. This story takes place in rural Nova Scotia. And I mean, it's a small province. There's many small towns. Um, And Penny Woodrow, the mom, she grew up uh, on a little island, Cape Sable Island, um, where, you know, the population is like 900 Mm. uh, maximum. It's a, it's a fishing village. And, uh, you know, so when she, uh, when she was old enough, she, um, course she uh, wanted a boyfriend and get off the island and at the local Sobeys she met Paul Woodrow um, and within months um, she uh, became pregnant uh, and was going to have the child Carissa well uh, when Chris was born uh, Penny then started dating almost immediately moved in with Paul's younger brother Shane and um, so, I mean, that's unusual. Um, but by all accounts, you know, they um, they managed through it. And uh, Shane and Penny um, raised Carissa and Paul was also involved. So, you know, that's a, an unusual dynamic. Um, I also found out that uh, Penny, um, Penny's own mom had killed herself, committed suicide when, she, when Penny was 11. So there's a lot going on there in this, you know, young woman. Um, and um, she marries Shane. They raise Carissa. Um, the grandparents are all involved. Very loving girl. Like Carissa is very spunky, very loyal, sweet, sweet child who, you know, it's blended family. So she's mm-hmm. spending time with her dad. She's spending time with her mom and Shane and with her grandparents you know, very religious family too. Um, uh, going to Bible school. Um, so yeah, it was unusual, but um, everyone, uh, by every indication, that child was, you know, Chris was very loved. She let her aunts, her uncles, everyone. Mm-hmm. And then something else would change. So that what you've described so far, this with this blended family, leading up to the crime that would that would end Chris's life. There was another change where Penny left um, the, the man, one of the men who raised Carissa, and was living with 
another man and Carissa was between the two homes. Can you kind of explain that point in Carissa's life and what led to her actually moving in with, with Penny? Sure. So, um, you know, um, Carissa was spending summers with her biological dad, Paul, still visiting, you know, living with Shane and, and, and Penny near Bridgewater. But um, eventually, Penny broke up with Shane and left him. This really upset Carissa. She was very close to Shane. I guess we would say her stepfather. Um, and, you know, within she gets angry and she says, I'm going to you know, move in with her dad and Shelburne. Meanwhile, Penny has met um, this gentleman named Vernon McCumber at the Atlantic Superstore in Bridgewater. And he's stocking shelves and she's a cashier. And, you know, within six months, they move in together. Mm. So now Penny is with Vernon um, and uh, Carissa's having a little trouble with uh, living at her dad's place and says, could I, could I move back in with mom? But when she moves back in with mom, she moves into an apartment in a three-story building with paper thin walls. It's tight. It's cramped. It's not the nice home she lived in with Shane and Penny. And she's she's angry about this. Now she's got this other man in her life that her mom's with and seems to care an awful lot about. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go well. And now in the story, a, a lot is said about Penny and Carissa's um, relationship and kind of the, the problems they were having at this point. But I've never really seen why or, or seen an explanation as to why Carissa decided to leave her dad's house to go with Penny. You, you just mentioned there that there was some conflict between Carissa and her dad, but I haven't seen much said or written about that. Do you, no. do you have any background on why she left? Yeah. No, it wasn't actually between her and her dad, Paul. They had a great relationship. They would go camping, go to the movies, um, but he had a girlfriend. Okay. So um, um, that's by all accounts, that seems to be in, in Carissa's diaries. You know, she wanted to be with her mom. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the most interesting interviews was actually with Shane and Paul's mother. So this is the mom, Suzanne Greer, um, who's a librarian, very well respected in little town, Shelburne. And it's her boys, you know, that uh, that were living with Penny. And and Carissa goes to her and says, Nanny, Nanny, you know, I think I should go be with mom. And those conversations with Paul and her nanny. Um, you know, they could understand why a girl at 12 would want to be with her mom. Um, but it's something that I'm sure haunts uh, Paul to this day. And he says so. And it also haunted Suzanne. She told me that when I interviewed her. She's since passed. But mm. this really played on her mind, too. Um, so it wasn't, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of normal that a child would, you know, change her mind. She's 12, almost 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people can relate to that, but yeah, she wasn't there very long. She moved in November, 2007 with um, Vernon and Penny. Now, when Carissa moves in with Vernon and Penny, you you described she needed to adapt a little bit to leaving an actual like standalone home with a yard and such to being in a smaller apartment with a whole lot less privacy. Uh, I don't know if it's, if it's just that or also the dynamic between Carissa and Penny, but it seems like, they weren't mixing well at all when Carissa moved in. Can you talk about Carissa's time living with Penny yeah. and Vernon and what problems they were having? 
Sure. We know what problems are having because we've seen Carissa's diaries. Mm -hmm. And in her diaries, she talks about, um, you know, I'm mad because I don't have, you know, I miss Shane. I don't have the backyard. Um, I'm upset because mom, you know, she can't relate to mom. Mom has these strict hours. I mean, in many ways, think of it. She was, you know, when you're turning 13 and a young girl, there's there's all kinds of that angst. Um, but she really um, feels angry about the living situation. And um, not, you know, not just cramped up, but that, you know, they're really keeping an eye on her. And, and they're fighting a lot. They're yelling a lot. Chris and Penny are, are in, clearly in conflict. Um, and I'm sure a lot of moms can relate to that. But this was really getting on Vernon's nerves. It was bothering him because he'd come up the stairs and hear hollering and yelling. And yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great situation. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, at least from Vernon's point of view, publicly, it was um, something needed to be done to quash the beef between Carissa and Penny. And it sounded like, and, and this is going to lead up to the point where we'll discuss uh, Carissa's disappearance, but pe- the original plan, according to Penny, was to have some time alone with Carissa for a drive in a talk. This was the version of the story we heard in the media initially when this was a missing persons case, um, is, is that this whole th- event starts with a mother yeah. and daughter going for a long drive to maybe set some boundaries and try to kind of reset the relationship. Yeah. So, you know, Vern says to, according to Vern, he says, you know, you need, you need to have a powwow. You need to go out and talk it out. So you're right. I mean, uh, on the surface, and I'll call this the lie, you know, uh, it's a Sunday afternoon. And Penny says, let's let's go for a talk, just you and me. Vernon says, want me to come? No, no, you have an app. We're going, just us girls. So they drive, uh, they drive uh, in her little neon car out to Lunenburg, which is about 20 minutes away. It's a beautiful town on the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Penny's suggesting um, that maybe they need a counselor. And, and Carissa doesn't want that, you know? kids are kids. I don't need a counselor. I mean, you know, it's pretty young to be get, getting into counseling. Mm-hmm. So she kind of refuses and pushes back. And they, they get into it the whole way along, I guess, arguing a little bit more. And uh, Penny's frustrated. Chris is frustrated. You know, she uh, says, just let me be a kid and adults are adults. You should act like an adult. I mean, this stuff goes on in the car. Well, then Penny pulls into the Sobeys in Bridgewater. They get back to town and uh, she says, I'm going to go get some groceries, uh, pick up two things, some bacon, some mango juice before the storm comes, a big winter storm's coming. So she goes into the Sobeys. Carissa doesn't want to come. And uh, she's in there less than five minutes and she's walking out the doors and sees the car is empty. So she says, uh, she calls Fern. She uses the payphone. This is 2008. There weren't a lot of cell phones like there are today. She uses the payphone and she tries to get Fern to say, oh my gosh, Chris is gone. And she thinks she just maybe left in a huff. But um, 
She leaves a voicemail. Then she calls and leaves another voicemail. Because Fern's sleeping away. It's Sunday, you know, six o'clock. And uh, she gets back in her car and she can't see Carissa anywhere. And so she starts driving around town looking for her. Carissa's only wearing pink Crocs on her feet and she's got a, only got a vest on. So maybe she headed home on foot. Um, but when Penny gets back to home, Chris is not there. And that's, of course, this is one of the versions of, of this story. Um, so it, eventually Penny contacts the police to notify them of initially i guess it's told as sort of a runaway slash missing person uh penny's story is just as you said there they they got in a fight in the car when penny went into the grocery store it seems that carissa took off um when when a 12 year old is reported to police as like a runaway I, i'm sure they get that call a lot in and it's probably not something where it's like an all hands on deck investigation initially but when i read about this story it seems like they've took they took carissa's disappearance seriously right from the get-go was uh, other than her being underdressed for the weather do you know of any other reason why it seemed to really pick up steam quickly oh sure i mean uh sergeant al cunningham you know he's lived in this town his whole life um there's never there's never a murder there in 15 years it's a small bridgewater 8500 people hmm. It's snowing. It's awful. I mean, you're right. I mean, in most cases, 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, he uh, he felt he felt worried for this child, uh, and when he talked to the mom, maybe something went off a little bit in his head. That you know, is this? I'm worried about this. This this mother keeps talking about this child by her and she and it at one point, and mm -hmm. like I don't know. Uh, he looks back now and says he really did have some hairs raised. Mm -hmm. So he takes it very seriously. He's, he searches till 3 a.m. in the morning before he calls it off. Um, and he's a great cop, you know, in a small town. This just never happens. Mm -hmm. And it, it very quickly becomes a major story, the search for the missing 12-year-old Carissa Boudreau. Um, this within days is all over the news, posters all over the town. Can, can you tell me what you've learned or even what you've experienced during the time that it was being as a, as a missing persons case? And what, what theories were there? Like as they couldn't find her and the days stretched on, what did people think were happening here? Look, I was watching it on TV. Mm -hmm. it, it was horrifying. I mean, um, I think because it is such a little small town mm -hmm. and, uh, and, Penny goes on TV and talks about it. Mm. Maybe we'll get into that. But, you know, people were afraid, like, had she been kidnapped? Um, was there some kind of, like, sex ring going on? Like, how could this happen mm. in, in Nova Scotia? And, um, you know, there's Amber Alerts. Child Find comes in, and it starts uh, to expand into the U.S. across the border um, and into New Brunswick. Um the search for Carissa people are leaving like their lunch breaks and going along the Lahave river bank, uh, that runs, uh, through Bridgewater. People were just, uh, really invested. I mean, th the parents were scared. They were driving their kids to school and sports. Um, 
you know, and, and me just watching on TV as a mom, I felt invested too. It's like, she's got to show up. I mean, one of the theories was that the river was partially frozen and had she tried to get home across the river and fallen in and, and drown. And so I think pe most people suspected that. Um, and when the river thawed over the next week or so, the divers went down, there were helicopter searches all over the area. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty dramatic in, in the middle of January in 2008. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so hundreds of people became involved, mm -hmm. uh, except for Penny. Penny mostly stayed in her apartment, the mom. And, um, you know, this struck people as a bit odd, but thought maybe she's so afraid that, you know, hoping that she'll walk through the door and come in, come home. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it definitely touched off some suspicions. And Penny says, maybe I should go on TV, try yeah. to find her. Yeah. So Penny, the, uh, Carissa's mom, Penny, not directly involved in the searches that have um, volunteers from all over who are taking part in searching for Carissa. Odd that Penny's not involved, but Penny does become the face of the search in a big way when she does, uh, you've already hinted to a TV appearance. She does that kind of tragic TV appearance where there's the parent of a missing child pleading for public support and giving a message directly to their missing child who they, I'm sure, in most cases, hope can hear the news report. Tell me about Penny's television appearance and plea to Carissa. So Penny comes in with Vernon, her boyfriend, out at, at, on one side and the police on the other. And standing behind her is Paul Woodrow, Carissa's biological dad, and grandmother, Suzanne. And Penny is um, saying speaking directly to Carissa in the camera saying, please come home, please call nanny. We're all missing you, your friends, please reach out to us. Um, you know, we're so scared. What's happened. You know, I'm not mad about the fight. It was just a fight. Um, so that was her first press conference. Well, two days later, she does a second press conference. Um, and again, this one attracts national media attention from, from all the big stations uh, in Canada and reporters. And she goes on again. And this time she, um, she says, Carissa, call, call anyone. If you don't want to talk to me, call somebody. And in the middle of the press conference, she says, oh, and thank you for everyone who's been out helping. And thank you for the, the support and money and and so that really um, rubs people the wrong way. You know, some people look at that and say, well, what's going on here? I'm just here to reach out to my dog, um, Carissa. I just want to tell you that you have lots of people who love you and want you home. Your Aunt April is here. Your mom is here. Your dad, Shane, Vernon, your Uncle Joey, your Aunt Chrissy, your friend Sarah's worried sick. Everybody at school, your grandmothers, everybody. Please just reach out to someone. At least call us and let you know you're okay. We all love you. 
And if there's anybody out there that knows, has seen her or anything, please call. Um, the other thing I want to say is I want to thank everyone in the community that's been a support. All the businesses we both work for and the community in general. Um, it's been very comforting. Nothing can be done to make things better, but it's comforting to have support. The main thing is I just want somebody to come forward. If not Chris herself, somebody let me know. It's hard to not know where your kid is. Some people were suspicious of Penny, but it seems more so the public was questioning uh, Penny's boyfriend Vernon's role in the story, where I believe he had a like a complicated legal background leading up to this that made him someone that a lot of people were pointing towards. What, what was the perception of Vernon from the public at this point? You know, Vernon is one of the most interesting people in this, in this tragic story because he had mental health issues. He uh, assaulted a police officer. You know, um, he really, on paper, had a bad record. Mm -hmm. And so, um, let's face it, you know, it's always the boyfriend. It's never the mom. Mm -hmm. So, the community immediately starts suspecting him. And um, and Facebook is just, is around back then. And it's just exploding with rumors about Vernon. Um so yeah, he definitely was uh, in the in the sight of line, not just of the community, but of police too. Um, so they bring in both of them and ask them to give official statements. Um, and Vernon, uh, you know, Vernon is nervous because he knows he's got a past and that's going to come out. So he he bends over backwards to say how much he loved Carissa, and um, you know how much he misses her and, and he's very, very upset and sad about her disappearance and he has started drinking heavily. So yeah, uh, Vernon was definitely the first suspect. Um, it, it, uh, it was getting pretty, uh, it was getting pretty intense in Bridgewater because by now we're, you know, almost two weeks in and she hasn't been found. And, um, so the rumor mill is rampant. And up until this point, with the exception of one piece of uh, evidence, there, there had been no sign of, of Carissa found. The only thing found at this point um, was one of her Crocs that she was wearing. Tell me the story of how that was found and you know what that led people to think. Um, it was so odd. A man was out uh, driving by this, uh, this kind of farmland dirt road and on the snowbank from the big storm that had finally been plowed sat one pink crock. And how odd it was sitting on top of a frozen snowbank. And so he calls police. Well, that is their first break in the case. Uh, because then they, uh, they realized something untoward has happened and something probably awful um, versus her running away. And so the pink crock is uh, used as holdback evidence. They, they ask the gentleman not to tell the public. We're not going to tell the public. We need to hang on to this. We need to do a major search, which they do. They conduct it into the evening looking for any other evidence um, of Carissa. 
but they're very smart. They hold back the evidence knowing that if something untoward has happened to her, this could be very important. And it proves to be very much so in the future. So at this point in the story that we're discussing, we're very much talking about the search for what's presumed to be a missing person. Uh, some uh, with the police having hold back evidence, uh, some suspicion being directed towards um, Chris's mom, Penny, and her live-in boyfriend, Vernon. It seems like investigators are are beginning to inspect expect some uh, a bad outcome for this story, but the. The story will really take a dramatic turn when a discovery, a second discovery is made, also completely accidentally. And that discovery is going to be Carissa's remains. Can you tell me how she was found? It was a fluke of nature, quote the detective on the case. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he actually took the first morning off. It had been 13 days and Sergeant Scott Feener um, was at home when he got the call. A little boy uh, had uh, needed to go pee. He was driving her along the LaHaye Riverbank with his mom in the car. And he couldn't hold it any longer. And there's this little spot, they call it the turnaround locally, because it's just big enough to turn a car around if you, you know, need to go back the other way. So the boy gets out and he goes through the snow a little bit, you know, over the river because he's he's shy. He, he doesn't want anyone to see him peeing. And, and the poor guy, you know, he's looking around and he looks down and he sees these what appear to be frozen toes sticking out from the snow. And he screams, Mom. And Mom get, runs over and she screams too. And... Um, you know, they, they don't know what they're looking at, but they know it's not good. And they flag someone down and they call 911. And, uh, you know, within minutes, uh, Sergeant Feener is there and the police, RCMP, are there. And um, sure enough, they look down the bank towards the river. Um, and the forensics go down and there's a frozen body. And it is not less than two kilometers away from Carissa apartment and Penny's apartment. And it's covered in snow. So they, um, once they sweep it off and find it, um, the story takes on a, a homicide investigation in which our CMP and the Bridgewater police join forces. So things are cha have changed dramatically here. And now, if, if there was any suspicion towards Penny prior to Chris's body being found, where she is found, where Chris's body is found, casts even more suspicion towards Penny because she had like an an, an odd uh, an odd situation play out there herself. Just I think like a day or two days before Carissa was found. What connects Penny to this turnaround where they found Carissa? Well, so um, her reaction is very unusual. Um, both her and Vernon. Vernon is is devastated, and and Vernon is still in their sights a bit um, because there's no other eyewitnesses. And nobody knows what's happened. Um, but Penny um, Penny calls in with um, her aunt and says, "We've got to come in and make a statement." She calls police and says, um, I, "I need to tell you, I was in that spot just days ago." 
so that the police are intrigued now. And, and you can bet there's a lot of people listening to this interview. So um, Penny's aunt from Ontario who had flown down goes into one room. Penny goes into another in the RCMP. And she says that I was in the area because we stopped there on our way to the ocean um, to take a drive and got stuck in the snow in the very spot where the remains were found. And she said, I, I just felt you needed to know you might find my tire tracks there. So this is the story um, that they she gives police. And at this point, Penny is still talking, um, cooperating. And so is Vernon. Um, but yeah, it's very unusual. And as Detective um, Fiener said, the hairs are up by now mm -hmm. on the back of me. But, but at least this part of the story is true. Like Penny did turn her vehicle around in this spot days before Carissa was found and got stuck in the snow to the point that someone had to like come and help pull her out of there, I believe. And maybe a passing motorist had to like actually intervene to get her vehicle unstuck. And there was a witness to this. So that, that part, whether she ended yep. up getting stuck there intentionally, it at least actually happened. It did. It did. Absolutely. But this is where it, it starts to change the story a little bit um, because the police decide um, that, you know, they're, they're the main suspects. They need to look at them closer. They did search the records of all any sex offenders. They didn't totally have tunnel vision. Um, I, I wouldn't say that um, because they were exploring other, you know, potential suspects. Um, but they call them, they, they, they're getting calls from the neighbors at this point now from the Jubilee road apartment that they're hearing a lot of things going on in the apartment. And, um, at this point, um, they call, uh, they decide they're, they're, they're going to try to make an arrest and really be aggressive and, and charge them and hold them for 24 hours and find out if, if either of them would confess because the neighbors have called in and they've got some dance, heard these terror conversations and fights and Vernon crying and yelling, Oh, she killed her daughter. So, you know, it's, it's time to step it up here mm -hmm. and uh, get them in. Yeah. And you said yourself there that one of the things they did in the investigation was uh, took a look for, took a look around for other sex offenders living in the area. Uh, that's something we should just briefly touch on is when Carissa was found, there was a reason to suspect that this may have been like a sexually motivated crime or something, or was at least she was, her body was displayed to maybe uh, hint towards that. What led to there being uh, a need to investigate sex offenders in the area? Well, it's a great question. Um, medical examiner, Matt Bose, who I was working with at the time because he's part of the justice department. Mm. He went down from Halifax. They knew this was so serious. He drove there um, down to Bridgewater to take a look at the scene. And he described to me later in our, you know, in our interview and his report talks, which was eventually public, how Carissa was found with her one leg of her jeans down and her Winnie the Pooh underwear down and almost uh, looked like, um, you know, someone had assaulted the child. Um, on the surface, that's what it looked like. But Dr. Matt Bowe says, I think someone's trying to 
um, stage this and make it look like a sexual assault. Yeah. And when he finished the autopsy, um, there was no evidence of a sexual assault. Wow. But the day he finishes the autopsy is very important in this story because um, to this point, three days in, sadly, they had to wait for Carissa to body to unthaw before um, they could do the autopsy. And um, the police call in Vernon and and Penny and, and the aunt that's visiting. And they think they're about to hear a status update on whether this body and remains were Carissa. The autopsy has just been completed. In fact, that's it's Valentine's Day. And the police take them into separate rooms and charge them with the murder of Carissa. On Valentine's Day. You know, and in a way, um, it's interesting because... Um, yeah, uh, Penny had, Penny had written a lot of love notes around the house for Vernon. We start to see and hear about kind of their relationship, but if they arrest them, then they can get a warrant to search the apartment. So that's what they discover. Dozens of love notes from, from Penny to Vernon, um, And notes that are very specific. I don't want you to leave me. I don't want you. I love you. I am the person, you know, of your dreams, that kind of notes. Um, It starts to show them what that relationship was all about. Mm -hmm. They were initially taken in, in charged. The search of the home was done that found like the odd, quote unquote, love notes that you described. But that wouldn't do the trick. Eventually they, they are released and the charges don't stick at, at least at this point. Why was it that they were like, did they not have enough information or why did it not end here? Well, for two reasons, this is at the point in the interview when um, Penny refuses to talk. So okay. up until now, she's been the face of the search Um they're trying to put pressure, say, look, we've heard what's going on. We think this, we're at your apartment right now searching. Um, and she says nothing. I want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it's true. In the apartment, they find a few traces of blood and they find a few other things, a cord. Uh, but nothing that the crown feels um, you know, is enough evidence. There's none of Carissa's clothing from that day. Um, and they have 24 hours, they have to release them. But in the middle of the night, they decide to send in an undercover officer into the cell with Vernon and Penny. Penny doesn't say anything. Penny is quiet the whole time, very little. However, Vernon's more chatty. Vernon is upset and he's telling his cellmate that his girlfriend's daughter's been murdered And this is what we call um, in the police um, world, you know, the start of a Mr. Big operation. Mm, Yes, uh, a controversial but effective investigation method that we've seen uh, we've seen be successful in several several major crimes on the east coast of Canada here. But Carissa Boudreaux is perhaps the most high profile 
effective use of the Mr. Bing's uh, of the Mr. Big Sting that that comes to mind. So they lay the initial seeds of the Mr. Big Sting by having, as you said, an undercover officer in the cell with Vernon to just strike up enough of a conversation that a month, weeks down the road, Vernon may remember this guy as the fellow he met at prison that day. So that's kind of where this starts. But tell me about how the RCMP used the Mr. Big Sting to get closer to Vernon and then to Penny. So walk me through that. So you're right. I mean, it started with the introduction of uh, one guy who says, I've got a business. I'm, I'll look you up. I'll look you up soon uh, and try to help you out. So this was plan B. This is, you know, after all the publicity and, and the discovery of Carissa, uh, police now go very quiet. And there's a joint um, operation being um, developed uh, with input from seasoned officers out in Vancouver, British Columbia, right across the country, right across Canada. It is controversial. You know, in England, they, it's it's forbidden because it, it's quite deceptive. I mean, they, they lure people in uh, on the pretense that they're working for the organized crime. Um, and... Um, Vernon is identified right away as the as the weak link mm -hmm. because Vernon has a drinking problem. You know he likes to talk. He's upset. Um, so they befriend they they send someone to befriend Vernon. This is when I first heard about this. Um, we you know we hear we hear it on TV etc. But when you talk to people who participate in this, and I tracked down the undercover agent, um, it took me a couple of years, but I I, I tracked down the guy who was Vernon's um, best friend, mm. and there was a bump. So they bump in in the liquor store. Hey, I know you. I know you. I got some work for you. Um, I'm going to, you know, you want to come work with us? We'll I'll introduce you to the boss. And so undercover Steve is the boss. And for the next four months, um, this man with a ponytail, uh, supposedly from Montreal, nice, drives a nice truck, you know, he befriends Vernon and he gets him doing little tasks, doing little deliveries. He doesn't tell him what's in the packages, but, you know, pays him cash. And at this point in his his life, Vernon is is uh, appreciating it because Penny's upset. She's not working. Vernon's not working. They have no money. Um, suddenly, Vernon has a job, and he starts to get very close to um, this new friend of his. Well, behind the scenes, every time they're together, there's warrants um, that have been issued. Undercover operators are allowed to tap and tape every conversation. Um, and it really is built on trust. So the relationship that Vern builds with undercover Steve, they go to Dooley's to play pool. They go to fancy restaurants. Um, they start giving them bigger jobs. They start saying, we need you to take these boxes and this shipment to Newfoundland. Can you go out West? Uh, suddenly think of it. Vernon, you know, the stock boy is now living, um, his best life, you know, and he's, he's sort of getting back on his feet, but very suspicious of Penny and worried, you know, he starts to have his own suspicions and he starts confiding 
in Undercover Steve. And his trust in Undercover Steve is so strong that Penny and Vernon's lawyer even warns them to be careful of who they let into their life at this point. And I believe specifically tells Vernon and Penny about the Mr. Big Sting that police can use. Yet he, that's not enough for him to realize what's happening. Yeah. So, so poor Vern, um, you know, his lawyer calls him ASAP. We need to talk. And he says, I saw this Mr. Big thing on W5 on a news magazine. You better watch out. At this point, Penny is not in the organized crime ring. Um, in fact, it's right around then where Vern says, oh, no, I would, wouldn't be stupid enough to fall for something like that. He tells Steve, he goes, and Steve's getting nervous that the whole thing's going to be blown. And he says, if you think that you get the fuck out of my truck. Like if you think, you know, I'm any part of that, I don't even want you near me. And Vern's like, no, no, no. I just wanted us to be aware of it. Right. Yeah. So that was a close moment. So it's at this point though, they start to realize Vern does not have direct evidence or they don't believe he, he hurt Carissa. They make that conclusion after about three months. So think about how tight you see Steve and Vern are. Like Vern calls him his best friend, man. I love you. I'd do anything for you. So so Steve says, anything? Well, I think we need a woman on the job. I want you to ask your girlfriend. And Vern's reluctant. No, 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 no. No, she wouldn't be good for this. She's, you know, no, no. By now they've moved to Halifax to get away from the media and she's working at another superstore. But Vern said, you know, Vern sees that his boss, his friend needs this help. And he says, all right, I'll try. If I do this, will you take care of us? Sure, I always take care of my guys. So Penny, they set up a meeting. They bring in an undercover woman. Um police officer um and the meeting goes well and then their sights are set on penny and it doesn't take long so they they convince penny to join this fake criminal organization to do the same kind of odd jobs that uh for for cash that vernon had been doing uh up until now penny largely kept to herself and wasn't kind of confiding in anyone but as you said it doesn't take long w what is penny's interaction like with undercover steve and his uh pseudo criminal organization well she thrives she loves it um, and she she loves the trip. She goes to Montreal um, and she she can't get enough of it. Um, and, and, you know, they buy her a cell phone. They give her a new name, Penny Jones. Uh, it's very exciting to her. Um, and she's willing to do anything. But then she tells undercover Karen will call her. Um, you know, she just wish her legal problems would go away. And uh, undercover Karen says, what do you mean, your legal problems? And then Penny starts to tell her about her da daughter being, you know, missing and, and, and murdered. And the police think it's her. Um, and she says to her, you know, I, I just really wish that I could blow up the, any DNA or, or evidence they have. And this is the conversation that will haunt her forever. 
So where does it go from here? So Penny can find, she doesn't say like, I did it. She just says like, my life would be easier and I could better devote myself to working in this criminal organization if that police station and the evidence within it were to blow up and be gone forever. That is like the blood in the water for the investigative sharks that are <laughs> running this Mr. Big Sting. What do they do with this information? Well, at that point, they realize, okay, she is getting desperate. And they call it a stim operation. They actually come and they pound on her door and she doesn't want to answer it. And she's calling Vern and who's with undercover Steve and she's rattled. And um, okay, so nothing happens in the next day or two. But very soon, Vern says, look, Steve, you got to help us. Like, you got to help us with our problem. And Steve says, I'll help you. I'll do anything for you. Um, he's also um, told them that once this mess is all over, they can move away and, and we'll, they'll, they'll get out of the province. They'll get a new house. Mm -hmm. You know, he promises them. He counts in front of them thousands of dollars of cash that is going to help them with a the down payment on a new house somewhere else. But yeah, they meet in a parking lot, in a coffee shop parking lot. And that is when um, they say, help make this go away for us, which leads to the ultimate meeting, um, the final day. How does that go down? So at this point, there's about 20 RCMP undercover um, oper operators and the Mr. Big flies in from Vancouver. And... Um, Steve says you're gonna you're gonna meet the the real mob leader and you're just gonna have to talk to him. I won't even be in the room, but you're gonna have to talk to him, Vernon Penny. So this Mister Big is very uh, astute and he knows how to get Penny alone in the room. And Vernon leaves, um, and it's very hard to talk about the conversation that came out there. But this is where Penny completely opens up and tells Mr. Big exactly what happened on that Sunday afternoon. And it's a lot different than the version she told the public and the investigators leading up to now. So she's sitting with Mr. Big in like a hotel room or whatnot with the idea that I can tell you everything and you're going to deal with it and make it a go away. She has complete trust in them as evidenced by what she goes on to reveal. What is this second version, the much closer to the truth version that we hear from Penny as a result of this complicated Mr. Big Sting? So undercover Steve is in the next room watching through a video camera. He doesn't even really know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. Nobody does. Um, she tells him that her boyfriend Vernon gave her an ultimatum that it was either me or the child. And so Penny decides she values the relationship with Vernon. Um, and she tells Mr. Bake that she did take her daughter for a drive that afternoon. And they did set out to Lunenburg and they did talk and things did go poorly. But she's also packed twine in the trunk of the car. And she tells Mr. Bake that 
they did go to the Sobeys. Um, and she corroborates like the drives around town, but instead of going to the parks, she went off the dirt road, the farm road, and Carissa was saying she wanted to get out. So at this point, Carissa is afraid, very afraid of why are we coming up here? And it's get dark and it's snowing. And Carissa gets out. Her mom comes around and shoves her and um, knocks her down in the frozen snow and takes out a piece of twine and puts it around her own daughter's neck. And, th and this is hard to, to retell. Mm -hmm. um, her, her daughter says, Mommy, don't. Those were her last words. A daughter that is trusting a parent. And yet Penny does strangle her daughter. And now we see that the pink crock that was left in the snowbank came off when she took her daughter and put her in the car. She then drives down to the turnaround spot. Um, and she takes her daughter and she rolls her down the riverbank and she confesses to Mr. Big that she did pull down the pants and try to make it look like a sexual assault. Penny then leaves. It's dark. There's not many people out. She takes the twine and she puts it in a coffee cup and she drives to the Tim Hortons and throws it in the garbage. And she takes the vest and the other pink crock and she puts them in a trash can. And she goes home. Wow. In this, like uh, with everything you know about this story, this version of the story that we hear from Penny to Mr. Big, how close to the truth, like, do you personally believe this is? Well, we know, we know a lot of it is, has to be true because it does align with what the police were able to uncover in terms of the evidence. It does only the killer would know the cause of death that was never revealed. Mm -hmm. um, it was Penny who said she was strangled and it was Dr. Matt Bose, you know, who I worked with who concluded that it was death by strangulation and that had never been public. We also know that the clothing and the other evidence was deposited in the places that Penny had said she had gone looking for Carissa. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, ultimately Penny is the only one. Um, who knows what truly happened, but the fact that she wrote this down on paper, that she confessed. Um, and remember, she didn't know she was confessing. She was being yes. videotaped. It's only when they arrested her um, a, uh, a week later after the confession on the video, um, she still maintained her innocence, even though she was now charged again. And um it's only when they brought in the tape and played it for her and she saw herself on camera mm -hmm. that she slumped down and, and cried for the first time realizing she had been duped mm -hmm. um so uh we have to assume that that is in part what happened mm -hmm. and, and, yeah yeah in the, in the mr big sting like yes they filmed her telling the story but 
they even went so far as to ask her to write it down. I just like when I hear of these Mr. Big Stings being successful, I think I'm just amazed that this can happen and that that wouldn't raise red flags in in Penny. So they they filmed her telling the story. They and they had her write out a version. Am I right with that? They had her write out a version, but they also got her to reenact it. <laughs> so they left the Halifax Hotel. Um, Penny. You know, Penny wanted so much, I think, for another life. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, undercover Steve threw up when he heard this in the next room. He he was equally disturbed. Like, you know, he says it was it was just pure evil what he heard her saying. Um, she does get in the car. She goes down to show them because Mr. Big says, well, I need to make sure we know everything so we can take care of the whole problem. Mm -hmm. Um she takes them to the site. She takes them to the spots. She's very uh, explicit in showing Mr. Big what happened. And then at the end, he says, we need one more thing from you. I mean, these RCMP have been doing this for years and years. Up to this point, they'd done 350 Mr. Big operations in Canada. And he asked her for a piece of clothing just to so that he can get rid of it in case there's any evidence and she gives him goes and gives him her winter coat that she was wearing that day it's amazing and uh, according to her penny's version that she gives mr big vernon was not aware of what she was doing i believe she even went so far as to say like i don't want vernon to know about this this is you know between us so it seems like vernon is not involved um in in, in her motivation is supported by the things she said, but also those kind of obsessive love notes that you described. It's very clear that the relationship as she saw it with Vernon was her number one priority, her number two and number three priorities as well. So I think I think that seems appropriate. That seems fair to say. Yeah, you know, it does. And uh, I think that's what makes it so even sadder and in all the interviews for the book and all the, you know, there's an aunt that spent many hours with me. Um, so, so hurt because Penny had choices. There were many people, as we talk about in, in Carissa's life, who would have taken her. And, um, you know, that her daughter was an inconvenience to her, um, that she would go to such lengths. Um, just makes it even more tragic mm -hmm. and unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And the story, as we hear, Penny had twine in her or rope or whatever in the trunk of her car, either by coincidence or by plan. Initially, there's enough evidence to charge her with first degree murder, which would involve some sort of premeditation. But that's not what she eventually gets gets stuck with what leads to her instead being convicted of second degree murder we tell that story sure so um the crown not only do they have the confession on tape mm -hmm. um they also have the premeditated fact that she made those phone calls mm -hmm. ahead and planted and out you know her version and out you know of what happened that's so, right because because when she's in the grocery store yeah. in sobey's a court the initial version is that carissa got out of the car and took off from there yeah. but in reality carissa was yeah. was killed after yeah. that yeah 
And so, you know, um, she, they feel that is premeditation. Um, she also, they think, picked this particular day because it was a snowstorm, mm-hmm. you know. So um, the Crown feels very confident that they could get first degree murder. But in situations as horrible as this, um, they want to try to spare the family a trial. And they consult the family and they do their research and they, they actually do the pros and cons, you know, um, they're very, they're very sure that they can get first, but is it worth it? Um, two mitigating factors. I think one was um, if we get her to agree to plead guilty and take second degree, can we get a long sentence? And they do, uh, negotiate and then talk with the defense about a 20 year sentence, which is one of the longest um, that you can get in second degree. And they go back and um, chat with the, you know, talk to the family um, and decide that um, this is the best way to go. I, I also think one of the factors was they didn't have to play the video which, which trust me, they, they, it's very, I can't imagine watching that um, and having that out in the public for two reasons, traumatizing for the entire family. And also it shows the ins and outs of the Mr. Big operation very clearly. Oh yes. Back in 2008, it's a controversial, you know, operation. So, I mean, they don't, they, no one has ever seen that except for the police. Um. And so, yes, they agree to a statement of facts. And that's how we know. And that's the research I started with. What did she agree was a statement of fact? And that uh, that does make the proceedings um, happen fairly quickly. That January morning when we, you know, when people thought a trial was starting and instead it was a guilty plea. Mm-hmm. So she is uh, sentenced right away that morning to 20 years without life or life sentence with 20 years without parole. Um, and um, in the end, you know, they got justice for Carissa because Penny could have got away with murder. You know, she almost did. Mm-hmm. And even though the RCMP um very challenging for me to work with. They they would say almost nothing, um, and and fortunately through court um, filings, etc., I was able to get the warrants, ITOs, and I did find undercover Steve to validate everything, and, and interviewed him many times. Um, you know they were successful, and, and I'm not sure Penny would have ever been caught without it. The story of of Penny and Carissa largely is, is completed at this point in, in our discussion, but there has been some updates recently. But Penny Boudreaux was in the news. I'm, I'm, I think I'm thinking back about a year or so for getting kind of re- I don't I don't think it was a reduced sentence, but increased privilege in prison. What what is her present situation now? So you're right in the Canadian justice system. Um, if you are if while you're serving your sentence and you're complying with all the rules, etc., um, you um, 
are are sort of moved from maximum to medium to minimum security. She is still in a jail for women here in Nova Scotia, but now we're away from Halifax and Truro. Um, she's living in um, a minimum security situation where, you know, they share a kitchen and they do their own laundry. Um, you can walk uh, around on the grounds um, freely. Um, and she is 15 years of her sentence is, is up. But you did hear about her um, successfully being granted, which is really upset the family and the community because they didn't know um, temporary escort passes of four hours, um, four times a year to go to church. Um, and she used those and then she gained more passes. And more recently, she was granted for the third time increased privileges to go visit a friend while being escorted by a correctional officer. So that is the system based on behavior uh, and rehabilitation um, back into community. It, it, uh, it really has screwed things up again. I mean, for obvious reasons, you know, people felt, including Paul, her biological dad, when these were first being granted, he thought a life sentence meant at least 20 years. But um, based on good behavior, this is what's happened. And now, as of today, uh, this week, um, June 15th, Penny can also has the option for the next three months uh, until September to apply for the Faint Hope Clause, mm. um, which in Canada um, has been abolished, but um, it was only abolished in 2011. And so her, the single act of murder she con confessed to committing and was sentenced for happened in 2008. So she could apply to, to a judge to have a hearing and see if she could have her parole date moved ahead. That's where we are today. In well, I want to get into some of your your research on the book and some of the reactions to it. But I just have to ask right off the bat, you you mentioned how many people you spoke with that were close to the story. Did you have any communication with with Penny? I assume you at least reached out. I did. Uh, initially, I wrote letters to Penny um, in jail, and they went unreturned. Um, she didn't write me back. Uh, then I went through the correctional services formal um, process uh, and pretty well laid out that I had interviewed family members, friends, some of Penny's friends uh, I interviewed, um, childhood friend, friends. Um, and um, so, so I was very upfront about um, the book and would she give me an interview or would she submit a statement? And she declined. And Penny Boudreau has never given an interview. Um, the only interview she ever gave was to the Mr. Big, and she did not know that was being taped. That is the only time she's talked about it. Wow. So your book comes out, Mommy Don't. It's it's full of, for even myself as someone who followed the story, your book is full of a, a lot of new details and inside information and firsthand quotes from people that are you know right in the middle of this story when you release this what has the reaction been like people in bridgewater who are seeing this ver this clear of a version of the story being told for the first time what what has the response been um 
Definitely, um, it's emotional. Uh, and I have gone to Bridgewater um, area for two different signings. Um, tons of people showing up, wanting to talk about it. Um, you know, some people um, are very, um, I, can, I, I don't, you know, the aunt chastity says it's comforting to see the whole thing, maybe a little therapeutic. Um, but most of all, it, it, it really is being seen, hopefully, as a tribute to Carissa. And the town put themselves into this, you know, search for this child so much mm -hmm. um, and felt so duped. Um, I think I think some people really appreciate that we'll never forget it. There are those, however, where it's just too emotional and traumatic to even... Um, you know, they can't even buy the book. Um, it has um, it has taken off right across Canada. And I think that's because it's so rare. Um, there are cases in the U.S. that make headlines that were fill aside a mother killing her daughter or her children. Um, now they've had a very hard time, the Crown, at even finding a similar case in, 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 in the court mm. case law. So I think it's because... People are intrigued by Mr. Big, and they're also, um, you know, just appalled that a mother would do this. Mm -hmm. uh, Carissa has come to be known, and I, I've seen her referred to as like Bridgewater's daughter or Bridgewater's girl. How is she seen in the in the community, and why do you think it is that the community has, you know, I don't know if the word would be embraced her, but have connected her to them in such a way? Well, I interviewed one woman who had never met Carissa. Her name is Nadine Sardi, and she is a big local community volunteer. And to me, she exemplifies what happened there. She felt guilt somehow that their safe small town didn't see anything, couldn't, you know, couldn't protect this child. Um, it's a mixture of um, grief and guilt that she, this child wasn't safe in their town. Um, and also that um, she was a member of their community. Um, and so it's tragic for them. They even, you know, she said they even felt bad that they drove by the site for weeks without finding her. Yeah. Um, they searched for her. They wrote poems about her. One of them is called Bridgewater's Daughter. There are even songs written about Carissa. Um, Rick Spinney, who heard about it, and he was so moved, you know, that he came to one of the vigils and the anniversaries for, for Carissa. So it really, um, it's the loss of innocence, too, I think, of a small Canadian town. I can understand that. Now, for people, like, in our discussion here, we just scratched the surface of the story. There's so much more to it than we would have time to get into on a podcast, but you do have enough time in a book. And I will say, I told you this before we hit record here, I don't recall ever reading a book as fast as I as I read Mommy Don't. I sat on the couch and I just couldn't get up. I went through it in, I think, a, a five-hour and a two-hour sitting. And again, this is a story I knew but I was learning so much and seeing it so well organized and so clear in the book that it's just, it's such an amazing telling of it. So anyone who's has any interest in the story, I couldn't recommend the book more. Where do people find it who, who want to hear the rest of the story? 
you know, I really appreciate that. This is my first book and, and I've, I, I really, you know, tried to share as much um, as I could. Um, so thank you for saying that. Um, you can, you can support your local bookstore, which would be your chapters, your calls or Nimbus publishing. You can order directly. Um, the, the first run is actually sold out, but there's a second print happening and it's on Amazon. The Amazon sales have been um, very high from what I understand in both Canada and the U S um, yeah. So and uh, if you want to learn more, I do have a website, sherryakenhead.com. If anyone wants to reach out and feels like they just want to talk about it once they've read it, definitely please do. It, it, it's a hard story to tell and it sure was a hard story to write. Um, yeah, I didn't set out to write a true crime book. I, I set out to write Carissa's story and yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad I did. I want to thank you for joining Sherry and I for this episode of Nighttime. During our conversation, we only scratched the surface of the Penny and Carissa Boudreaux story. If you want to know the rest, I can't recommend Sherry's book more. You can find Mommy Don't wherever good books are sold. Now, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode, but before we part, I'm going to end with some thanks. First, a big thanks to Sherry for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. A big thanks to Monty Data, who contributes the music for this episode. A shout out to LJ from the Dystopian Simulation podcast, who provides my intro and outro voiceovers. And lastly, but most importantly, a massive thank you to each and every one of you listening to Nighttime. As without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. Now on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Lindsay, Merritt, and Katie, thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can help us out in a variety of ways. First of all, a premium feed subscription costs only a couple dollars a month and both funds the creation of the show while giving you the episodes two days early, giving them to you ad-free, and giving you access to a full back catalog of episodes. If that sounds good, you can go premium at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcasts. And if for whatever reason you don't want to go premium but still want to support the show, you can give us a big hand by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any story ideas, want to give feedback on the show, or would like to contribute a question or comment to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. Now, I hope to hear from you, but until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? (laughs) Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.